Hey there, thanks for tuning in to St. John's Asheville Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope, and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. Uh, for my dad and his dad, uh, this uh, was quite a literal moment for them at one point in their life. Uh, my dad's family moved to Australia from uh, England via India when he was about six years old. Uh, and both uh, my dad and his dad uh, were strong swimmers who uh, quickly grew uh, very excited about Australian beaches. But of course, they hadn't grown up in the way that so many of us have, uh, learning how to read the surf conditions. Uh, one day, when uh, Dad was 12 years old, they went swimming uh, here at uh, Bombo Beach near Kayama. Uh, Bombo is renowned as a great beach for surfing and a terrible, dangerous beach for swimming at. Uh, it didn't take long before uh, Dad and Granddad found themselves caught in a rip, and quickly they were dragged out hundreds of metres from the shore. In God's kindness, there were some surfers out there who uh, saw them struggling and picked them up and brought them in, though it could have been, of course, a very different story. Maybe you've been caught in a rip before, maybe you haven't. Uh, But we all know that sense, I think, of being out of our depth. Uh, My dad and my granddad were having a perfectly pleasant time until the moment they realised they were in serious trouble. In an instant, the same can and does happen to us in our own lives, doesn't it? Financial trouble or relational difficulties or an accident or a physical or mental illness can creep up on us and bam, all of a sudden, we're flailing about in the waves on the verge of drowning. And you realise, I can't do this. I am so far out of my depth right now. Uh, Here in this next section of Matthew that Veli has just read for us, uh, Jesus lays out for us with absolute transparency the fact that entering into the life of the kingdom that he's been speaking about in these chapters is going to mean being way out of our depth. Uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, along with their mother, you love that, they bring their mum along to come, just, you know, mm. James and John, along with their mother here, Jesus say that he's going to go to Jerusalem and the final showdown is going to take place. He's going to enter into his kingdom. He's going to become the king. They want to share in his victory at his right and his left hand, uh, as his right and left hand men, if you like, positions of power and prestige. They're trying to get in on the spoils of the victory, of course, before the other disciples do. Uh, It might be that uh, Peter and his brother Andrew were kind of in the box seat for being at Jesus' right and left hand, and and the sons of Zebedee go, let's just try and get in a little bit early and and sneak in there. They're trying to get the spoils of the victory. And Jesus says to them, you do not know what you are asking. In other words, you are in way over your head. You are way out of your depth. You have no idea what you're getting yourself into. And in the conversation around their request, Jesus makes it clear that just as uh, for these two men, uh, just so for us as well, if we follow him, we will suffer. Uh, He picks up a fairly common Old Testament metaphor for suffering, that of drinking the cup. And he says, yes, if you throw yourself in with me, you will share that cup. But there's a deeper meaning to the cup that Jesus speaks about, a meaning that goes beyond what James and John realise and hear here about uh, what it means for our suffering. There's a deeper meaning here that the rest of the disciples haven't yet understood. Because there's a cup, you see, that Jesus alone will drink. And drinking that cup is what's going to make it possible for you and me to stay afloat, even when we're out of our depth. So as we unpack this passage, we're going to dive into the meaning of the cup. Uh, Three points you can see there. Firstly, uh, what does it mean to share Jesus' cup? Subtitle, The Problem of Suffering. Just, Just something different this week, a little subtitle for you. Three points. What does it mean to share Jesus' cup, The Problem of Suffering? Secondly, what does it mean for Jesus to drink the cup, the problem of wrath? 
And thirdly, the difference between the cup that Jesus drinks and the cup that Jesus gives. So we're going to get straight into it, point one. What does it mean to share Jesus' cup? Uh, So as we've seen, James and John come to Jesus with their mother and together they ask him to give them uh, these positions of power and prestige when he becomes king. Uh, Jesus responds with an assertion and with a question. Verse 22, he answered them, you do not know what you are asking. And then the question, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Jesus again says, you're way out of your depth here. And he, he asks them if they're really up for joining him in the mission that he's undertaking. And they respond, we are able Uh, Intriguingly, having just made the assertion that they have no idea what they're asking for, Jesus affirms their response. He says, yes, you will. You will indeed drink my cup. So they don't know what they're asking for, and yet they're not entirely wrong about what it's going to mean to follow Jesus. What is it that they get right? What they get right is that to follow Jesus in his mission to bring in the kingdom of God, the rule of God over the world in order to set everything right, to follow Jesus in this great work will involve suffering. Drinking the cup is an image, as I've mentioned, drawn from the Old Testament. It means essentially to be, to be overwhelmed by disaster. Uh, now, the family of Zebedee here are clearly still thinking in those same categories as the disciples have been throughout the passages we've read in the last few weeks. They haven't got their kind of kingdom mindset. They haven't moved to a grace paradigm yet, and they're just not quite understanding what it is that Jesus is on about here. They seem to interpret Jesus' talk about mocking and flogging and crucifixion as a metaphor and hyperbole indicating the difficulty of the coming battle and the need to make sacrifices along the road to victory. And James and John are certainly the type of people to relish that prospect. Mark's Gospel reports that Jesus gave them a nickname, Sons of Thunder, because they were so kind of like, yeah, let's go, let's do it, let's get it, you know? They're the kind of people who you can bet were spoiling for a fight and, of course, for the spoils of victory that come with it. But whatever it is that they don't know about what they're asking, you see, they are admirably willing to actually endure sacrifices for the cause. And Jesus says to them, you will, you will do that. He says it to them clearly, you will drink the cup of suffering. And what Jesus says to them here, he says to us, of course, as well, follow me and you will suffer. Uh, That's true in two different ways, I think. On the one hand, there's suffering for Christ. On the other hand, there's suffering in general. Uh, Suffering for Christ, that is, suffering specifically because you're a Christian who's chosen to throw your lot in with Jesus to walk his kingdom way, that's a real thing and it will happen to you. Uh, For James, the son of Zebedee, uh, that meant being put to death by the Jewish king Herod uh, as an example that worshipping Jesus would not be tolerated in his kingdom. You can read all about that in Acts chapter 12. Uh, Now, you and I are highly, it could happen, but highly unlikely to face death on account of Jesus, though, of course, there are many in our world who will do so even today. But even if you don't suffer that kind of extent of suffering, you will absolutely suffer for Jesus. You'll deny yourself pleasures that could be yours if you weren't walking his way. You'll cop ridicule from friends and family and co-workers who think that religion's for chumps. You'll be slandered as bigoted and intolerant because Jesus thinks so differently about the world around us to some of the things that matter most to our culture. You'll miss out on advancement in your workplace because you won't be part of the gossip and the posturing that you need in order to get ahead so often. You'll be absent from social gatherings because you've committed to gathering with other followers of Jesus on Sunday and throughout the week. Do these things rise to the level of quote-unquote persecution? Probably not. But are they sufferings for Christ? You bet they are. Suffering for Christ is a real thing that will happen to you. There's also, of course, suffering in general. And in some ways, this is even harder to get your head around, I think. 
Uh, never once does Jesus promise that following him will actually decrease your sufferings. Uh, suffering in general is a real thing that will happen to you. And there are three reasons for it, actually. Firstly, there's just the, the plain fact that the world is broken. Sin still enslaves, evil still hurts, death still steals those we love away from us. Jesus has broken through death into resurrection life, yes, and amen and hallelujah. But their final eradication remains in the future for us. It's our hope. It's where it's all heading when the Lord returns. For now, though, the world is still broken, and that means that we will suffer. Secondly, though, following Jesus uh, will almost certainly deepen even these general experiences of suffering. Uh, the reason, simply put, is love. Uh, Jesus says to his disciples in John's Gospel, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And if we love, we will, therefore, in Paul's words, weep with those who weep. Uh, thirdly, and relatedly, the, the more we see what life in the kingdom looks like, this God-centred life in which he's at work to remake all that is broken, the more we actually enter into that kind of life, the more we're going to long for that work to be complete. The expectation of the renewal of all things at the Lord's return is going to mean that we get more attuned to the sufferings and injustices of the world and long more deeply for them to be overcome because we know that that's what Jesus has come to do. That's what he's begun in his death and resurrection. That's where it's all going. And so even as we rest in Jesus' promise to come again, as we hope for that future, as we seek to love those around us, even our suffering in general is going to be deepened if you follow Jesus. Uh, there's nothing inherently noble about suffering in any of these ways, of course. They're facts of life in a world still marred by sin and evil and death, intensified by following a suffering and crucified king. And yet suffering does have its place in the purposes of God. Uh, suffering, the scriptures tell us, uh, is an experience through which God can change and refine and beautify us, if we'll let him. Suffering, of course, can make you bitter, uh, not unlike those workers in last week's parable. God is not fair. Why would you let this happen to me? I deserve better. And if you refuse to take Jesus at his word, that you really will suffer, but also that actually the benefits outweigh the costs, if you refuse to take Jesus at his word, so that, that, that suffering will just actually come as a surprise and a shock to you. And that's probably what it's going to do. It's going to make you bitter if that's the case. But if you take Jesus at his word, accepting suffering as a way of life in the kingdom as we wait for our king to return then God actually is able to use those experiences, you see, to wean you from your dependency on the wrong things, like that rich young man a few weeks back, and to deepen your love for him as you throw yourself more and more on his love and grace for you. Jesus was absolutely transparent here with James and John, and he is with us too. He says, follow me, and you will most certainly suffer. You will drink the cup of suffering that Jesus has drunk. None of this should come as a surprise to us. And after all, if Jesus, our Lord and Master, suffered in all these ways, then why should we, his people and his servants, expect any different? There's no question that we're going to suffer as we follow the crucified king. Talk about being out of your depth, because those things come unexpectedly, often surprisingly, in surprising ways, even if we actually expect them in general. You're going to be out of your depth. The question is then, how will we endure the suffering that comes to us in whatever form it takes, whether it's suffering for Christ or suffering in general? How are we going to stay afloat? How will we remain steadfastly loyal to Jesus even when we face derision and disparagement for his name? How will we trust and hope in him even when life hurts? Uh, the answer actually is in the cup that Jesus himself will drink. So point two, what does it mean for Jesus to drink the cup? Uh, James and John get one thing right. As we've seen, the kingdom will mean suffering. We will drink that cup. 
And yet Jesus says there's a deeper sense in which they don't know what they're asking. So what is it that they've gotten wrong here? What they've missed is the deeper sense in which those who follow Jesus, uh, James and John, the rest of the disciples, you and I, will never drink from the cup that Jesus has drunk. You see, the image of the cup in the Old Testament is an image of suffering, of being overwhelmed by disaster, but uh, almost always it's an even more specific image used for a specific kind of suffering. That is, suffering under the wrath of God. Uh, We read about it earlier in the prophet Isaiah. Rouse yourself, rouse yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You have drunk to the dregs the bowl of staggering. Your children have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like antelope caught in a net. They're full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. The same image is actually picked up right at the end of the scriptures in the book of Revelation, where John writes that the wicked will drink the wine of God's wrath poured unmixed into the cup of his anger. God's wrath and God's anger. A touchy subject, right? We're really hitting on all of them in the last few weeks. We've had talking about marriage and divorce. We've had talking about your wealth. And and now here we are talking about the wrath of God. It's become quite fashionable in our world uh, to question whether uh, wrath and anger are fitting attributes uh, for God, whether they're fitting ways to talk about God. You hear people say things like, haven't we as a society moved on from the idea of a God who would be angry? Surely God's about love. And love means just letting people be themselves and loving them for who they are, right? So can't we leave behind this idea of God's wrath? Wouldn't a God who pours out his fury on the wickedness of the world actually just be a kind of moral monster? But as uncomfortable as we might be with the idea of a God who expresses wrath and anger, it turns out that that's actually exactly the God who we need. Because we know that there are things that should evoke our anger and fury and rage, aren't there? There are things that are just not okay. Miroslav Volf, a Christian theologian from the Balkan nation of Croatia, writes about God's wrath in the context of the warfare and ethnic violence in his own country during the 1990s. Uh, He's got a a remarkable book uh, called Exclusion and Embrace, uh, in which he argues that in in order to actually live a peaceful life where you don't do violence to others, you have to believe in the wrath of God. Uh, Here's what he writes. He writes, Belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians and especially theologians in the West. To the person who's inclined to dismiss it, that is to dismiss divine vengeance, dismiss the wrath of God, to the person who's inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you're delivering a lecture in a war zone, which is where a paper that underlines this chapter was originally delivered. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered and then burned and levelled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Soon you will discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. And as one watches it die, one will do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. Do you see what he's saying? There are real evils in this world, and they rightly provoke outrage. And to imagine that God isn't angry about it is to imagine a God who in the end just doesn't care. Uh, Wolf concludes, a non-indignant God would be an accomplice in injustice, deception and violence. Do you want to know what a a real moral monster would look like? Imagine a God who isn't outraged by domestic violence. 
Imagine a God who isn't incensed by Uyghur people being herded into Chinese concentration camps. Imagine a God who isn't furious about the sexual abuse of children in his church. Imagine a God who isn't grieved by the, uh, by the prevalence of depression and anxiety among our teenagers and young people. That's what a moral, moral monster looks like. Do you want a God who's like that? I sure don't. But of course, that's not who God is. God does care. God rages against the injustice and the suffering and the evil of our world. He hates all those things that cause you and me to suffer, and he's angry about it. The wrath of God is his good and just anger against everything evil that ruins the world that he's made and he loves. It's so easy and so common to misunderstand talk about the wrath of God as kind of describing him irrationally flying off the handle about random things that happen to make him unhappy. Nothing could be further from the truth. The wrath of God, you see, is the outworking of the love of God against everything that harms and distorts what he loves. Like a parent who rages against the abuse of their daughter or the addiction of their son, so our Heavenly Father rages against every evil that diminishes and distorts his world and his people. He won't stand for it. He won't let sin and evil and death ruin his world forever. He's determined to destroy everything that hurts and harms the world that he's made. Theologian Fleming Rutledge puts it like this somewhere. There it is. She writes this. The biblical message is that outrage is first of all in the heart of God. The wrath of God, you see, is good news for us, good news for you and for me and for the world. The wrath of God shows you that he is steadfastly opposed to every injustice in this world and to every hurt that you have ever known. It breaks his heart. It causes him to well up in anger and he's determined to make it right. We have a God, you see, who loves you and me and the world enough to be angry about it. It seems to me that uh, all of this is getting a little easier to understand in our world as we move away from a kind of you know, 1990s postmodern tolerance that refuses to ever pass judgment into a culture which is much more easily outraged, where injustices are publicly and loudly caught out. Uh, outrage is in again, if you like. And there's actually really, there's some, some really good things about that, aren't there? But you see, even if we understand the rightness of wrath, we can still have a problem with God's wrath. And the reason is that our outrage doesn't always neatly map on to God's outrage. Uh, in fact, there's a, a definition of sin kind of in, in amidst all this, if you like. Uh, here, here you go. Uh, sin is the attitude of the heart that loves what God is outraged by and is outraged by what God loves. God is outraged by the sin and evil and death that cause you and I to suffer, but of course he's also outraged by the sin and evil and death that you and I cause. The problem here is that you and I are part of the problem. We suffer under sin and evil, and yet we also sin and do evil. Human beings made by God to reflect his image in creation, his goodness and beauty and light, have given ourselves over to sin and ugliness and darkness. We've let sin drag us over to its side, if you like so that we too stand condemned by God's outrage. And so what's the solution? How can the wrath of God still be good news even when we've ourselves gotten all tangled up with the very evil that causes us to suffer? It's right there actually in the second half of uh, that passage from Isaiah 51. Here's what Isaiah says. Thus says your sovereign, the Lord, your God, who pleads the cause of his people. See, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering. You shall drink no more from the bowl of my wrath. You see, the same God who is outraged about sin and evil and death in the world is the same God who pleads the cause of his people. 
And he has promised that he will take away the cup of his wrath. And the fact that God is determined to take that cup away from his people tells us something vitally important that you have to understand when the Bible talks about God's wrath. It's that you and I are not actually the primary target. God is just as furious about what sin is doing to you, his precious creation, the way it twists your heart and leads you off into disobedience. He's just as furious about that as he is about the actual sins that you commit, you see. And he will not allow sin and evil and death to have the last word on you. God is determined to destroy sin and evil without destroying sinners and evildoers. And his wrath is turned against sin and evildoers only when they refuse his promise to take the cup from them and insist on drinking it themselves. How then is this all going to work? How is it that God will destroy and eradicate sin from the world that he loves? And how will he somehow extract us from the mess of sin so that we can enter into the life of his kingdom where the rule of God begins to set everything right? Sin and evil and death still need to be dealt with. God can't just shrug his shoulders at it. And we shouldn't want him to. Someone has to drink the cup. And so we come back to Jesus' conversation with James and John and their mother. This is what they'd gotten wrong, what they'd missed. The kingdom that Jesus was going to Jerusalem to establish was about far more than overthrowing the Romans. He was going to overthrow sin and evil and death. Remember the context of this conversation. Jesus has just told his closest companions that he will be put on trial, he will suffer, he will die, and he will be raised again. And when he speaks now of uh, the cup that I'm about to drink, he's, he's showing us actually the meaning of the cross here, the meaning of his death. He's going to take the cup of the wrath of God away from you and me and drink it on our behalf. And by drinking it for us, he's made a way for God to unleash his fury, to destroy every injustice and every evil and every suffering without destroying you and me. Jesus and Jesus alone is going to drink that cup of God's wrath. And yet at the same time, he does say to his followers, doesn't he, you will indeed drink my cup. We're not drinking the cup of God's wrath. We are sharing in his suffering. But Jesus has even, even more to say, I think, about what it is, this cup that he's going to give us to drink. So point three, and we'll finish here. The difference between the cup that Jesus drinks and the cup that Jesus gives. And now, I think it's pretty much impossible for you and I to truly contemplate what it meant for Jesus to drink that cup of God's wrath. Uh, his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before he died gives us some insight into it. That anguished cry, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I want, but what you want. But Jesus alone drank that cup and experienced that agony. But you see, earlier on that same night, he gave another cup to his disciples. Now, Jesus took a cup, we read in Matthew 26, and after giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. See, Jesus has exchanged one cup for another. He's taken the cup of God's wrath from us and given us the cup of forgiveness, the cup of blessing. At the cross, you see, Jesus suffered every evil and every pain and plunged down beneath the waves of death and took them all with him. He drained the bitter dregs of the cup of the wrath of God until not a single drop was left for you and me. And in its place, he's given us the cup of his life-giving blood from which we drink freely. Jesus is absolutely transparent. You say, follow me and you will suffer. You will absolutely find yourself out of your depth. How are you going to endure it? How are you going to remain steadfastly loyal to Jesus when you face division and disparagement for his name and when you need to trust and hope in him even when life hurts? Well, as for James and John, so it is for us. 
when we ask Jesus to bring us into his kingdom, we don't know what we're asking most of the time. We have no idea what lies ahead for us as we follow him. And yet we know this one thing, that whatever cup of suffering we are given, we will never drink the cup of the wrath of God. God rages against every suffering that you know and every other suffering as well. But he has spared you the cup of his wrath and in his place Jesus has given us his cup of blessing. And that's what we're going to celebrate as we come to the Lord's table in just a few moments. We're going to be able to say, of course, with James and John, not only that we don't know what we're asking, but also that, yes, we are able. We can walk this way. We don't know what we're asking, but we do know him. And so as we experience his love more and more and repentance and suffering obedience, we'll continue to feed on him in our hearts by faith and drink deeply from his cup of blessing, our souls nourished by his blood shed for us for the forgiveness of sins. That's the only way to stay afloat. That's the only way to keep your head above water, to know that there's one cup that you will never drink and that Jesus pours out his blood in a cup of blessing for you. Let's pray that God will continue to drive his deep love for us in this into our hearts. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that uh, you have uh, poured out your wrath, not on us, not on evildoers and sinners, but instead on the Lord Jesus. We thank you, Father, for his willingness in love to walk the way of the cross, to drink that cup so that we wouldn't have to. Father, we know that we will share in his cup of suffering in this life. But we know that because we will never drink that cup of wrath, that you are always with us, that you love us, that you are determined to rid this world of suffering and evil and injustice, that you care about our hurts. And so, Father, fill us so deeply with the nourishment of Jesus' body and blood, his loving death for us, that we might also know life in him and walk in holiness walk in joy and peace, even though we suffer, as we wait for him to come and bring all of these things to their final end, when every tear will be wiped away. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.